Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. I'm coming to you live from Dr. Bruce Garrick's house uh, for a special Winter of Wargaming edition, uh, Tabletop uh, tabletop Day, uh, with Bruce himself. Bruce, hi- welcome to the show. Hello, gamers. So, we've uh, we spent the weekend playing a variety of interesting de- uh, games, 13 Days, uh, which is sort of a... Distillated Twilight Struggle. Uh, let's say it's that's a, fair to say a short form sure. uh, Twilight Struggle that involves a lot of the same risk reward mechanics, right. uh, bluff mechanics, but it only takes thirty minutes to play. Yeah, which is a huge advantage. Yeah, um, and we also spent uh, pretty much all of yesterday yeah. playing the Magisterial mm-hmm. uh, Churchill by Mark Mark Herman. Um, Bruce, I want to spend a little time talking about this game because mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting, but why don't you set the stage a little bit and talk about what Churchill is and why it was sort of at the top of your list for games we should play together uh, while we were visiting. Okay, so um, when uh, Rob said that he could come for the weekend, um, I thought that there were a number of things we could play. Of course, we uh, overplanned or at least... Uh, underestimated the amount of time that would take to do things, uh, which is normal and fine. Um, But the one thing I definitely wanted to do was I wanted to play Churchill because, Rob, I think it's been on three moves ahead. Um, I talked to Mark Herman about it, and um, we never got you to play it. We almost got you to play it, uh, I think, last time you came when I lived in North Carolina. But we ended up playing Triumph and Tragedy, which was great. Uh, but this time, I think uh, it, I thought it would be really important to see what you thought. I was really curious to see what you thought about Churchill and just the way that the game is structured, the way the mechanics play out, um, and what to make of the crazy victory conditions that uh, we ended up at the very end of the game trying to sort of desperately, um, I think you and, and Evan, so my friend Evan came over uh, to, uh, to play. It was a great time. Uh, really enjoyed having him. He, uh, he ended up winning. Uh, just barely, I think, uh, Rob was the uh, British, Evan was the Americans, I was the Russians, and that caused uh, me to um, try out some different strategies, let's put it that way. Um, so well, we can talk about that. And uh, I think the first the, the first surprise for me was that Churchill was not, in fact, a game of uh, martini and cigar appreciation yeah. uh, and colonialism, no. but is instead a strategy war game adjacent, uh, almost like bartering game, mm-hmm. uh, covering the multilateral conferences uh, that sort of marked each stage of World War II, mm-hmm. uh, where the big three powers and their representatives would meet and discuss both uh, general war fighting strategy, where they're going to prioritize resources, mm-hmm. and also what the post-war order uh, was going to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the way the cycle of play tends to work is that uh, each conference, like every every turn basically represents one conference. Mm-hmm. There's There's 10 of them in the game. Uh, it starts with somebody with each with each player bidding to see who gets to set the agenda, mm-hmm. uh, and there's some advantages and disadvantages uh, that come from being the agenda setter. Mm-hmm. And then for uh, each it, each turn, uh, several issues during the agenda uh, phase have been placed at the center of this ring mm-hmm. with three spokes leading out to each of the three powers. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you want when the conference ends. 
each issue to be pulled onto your track so that right. it represents that you had more pull over this one particular topic. And so you're going to, at least for this conference, mm-hmm. everyone sort of agreed to sort of go along with your vision. Right. And where I think it gets really interesting, and this is what surprised me, mm-hmm. um, is how much it does feel like a war game, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in that. I think a lot of, and, and we talked a bit about this, Bruce, mm-hmm. about like a lot of the appeal of wargaming is like touching parts right. of history mm-hmm. and like seeing things you've read about, but right. like represented in a way that you can interact with them. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been reading a lot of Pacific uh, theater uh, literature uh-huh. late, and you can't really like, you can't discuss that theater without discussing the resource shortages that crop up with the fact that every power is kind of debating whether they want to commit resources right. at all there. Right. That's kind of represented in this game. This is one of those games, this is, this is a war game, mm-hmm. where you definitely see the dynamics that cause everything to go into the Mediterranean front for no good reason mm-hmm. for like two years. Mm-hmm. Um, or why suddenly, uh, only when the Russians are at the absolute brink, mm-hmm. Do the Western powers finally sort of mobilize their industrial resources and send those to, to Stalin mm-hmm. uh, to help the Russians start pushing the Germans back? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I was really sort of tickled by by how well that was that was represented mm-hmm. and the odd mix of self interest and like collaboration by necessity that mm-hmm. sort of dominates this game. The mm-hmm. Germans really, <laughs> the Germans and Japanese really should be defeated. Right. There is an outcome where, where where they don't, and if each player starts behaving maybe excessively self-interestedly, mm-hmm. you can't get much done during the combat phases, right? Because there aren't enough resources to right. any one front, right? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So the 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 way that Mark has described it, uh, I think both to me and in in public in general, um, we had talked about it. Um, he says that experienced players who are there's there should be no problem um there should be no problem defeating the axis i mean you should be able to defeat the axis that's it's not one of those things where you can't what the, the point where is uh you where you don't is where the powers don't don't collaborate appropriately or effectively which is kind of what happened in this game because we didn't defeat the axis we actually ended up one, I was one um, space away from, I was adjacent to Germany when the clock ran out. And uh, I did end up, the, the, so the Russians ended up uh, conquering Japan on their own uh, before the U.S. really got out of the gate. I don't think the U.S. got to any of the victory point spaces. Um, you got close in the China-Burma-India theater. I mean, you were like two spaces I advanced away, I all the way to Hong Kong, which is a... And- this is a hint of how selfishly everyone was playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's multiple victory tracks and sort of push-pull, except it only pushes one way. The, the Axis right. only lose ground right. uh, in this campaign. Uh, but you have to spend a resource to sort of move the ball down the field and mm-hmm. push closer to the Axis homeland. Uh, and China-India-Burma theater, which was not the center of the action mm-hmm. in the Pacific historically, right. somehow ended up becoming the most productive Western allied theater mm-hmm. right? Uh, because... I noted at a certain point that only the UK, uh, my side, Mm -hmm. gets victory points for capturing Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And so I just started, once I realized that was within reach, Mm -hmm. I started pushing really hard to do that, Mm -hmm. which meant starving 
the uh, Central Pacific and South Pacific theaters mm-hmm. uh, and open the door for Bruce to sort of skate into Japan. Yeah, so that was an interesting thing. So <clears throat> one of the things that the game does is that it has these um, sort of consensus options. They're called conditional issues, which only happen basically if everyone agrees or if everyone is seen to agree. Um, not, they don't necessarily have to agree. You can sort of trick people into agreeing. You can, if you have the last move in the conference, you can sort of ar- arrange things to your benefit or, or not, um, or to the everybody's benefit. But the two uh, issues that are important are the second front, which basically allows the um, Western Allies to land in Normandy, and then there's the Russia declares war on Japan, which is something that's supposed to happen really only to fulfill the Japan surrender conditions without having to invade Japan, because um, the Americans, if they take uh, a B-29 base, basically, if they take islands that are within B-29 range of Japan, and they develop the A-bomb, which you guys did, uh, and Russia has um, declared war on Japan, that confluence of, of conditions called the Emperor uh, Surrenders Condition. And so you don't actually have to invade Japan. Now, at some point, I realized that I, I actually won the agenda uh, phase, so I happened to be the person that was going to go last in that, um, in that uh, conference. So I was going to play the last card. So I would sort of get to, I would take one issue and I would get to sort of set where I wanted that as long as I saved a, a high enough uh, value card. And so I just, what I decided was that I would take the uh, Russia declares war on Japan issue very early. I think it was like turn four. So it was like 1943. And I said, you know what? Why don't I just see if I can blast through into Japan? And it worked. Uh, not only did I get the condition uh, satisfied, but then I basically steamrolled it a couple times and uh, and got into Japan, and that was that basically shut down the um, the Americans before they really got going. I mean, they didn't really get anywhere. Um, you saw what I was doing, so you decided you were going to try to race to get down your track. Well, especially because once Japan falls, there's no more action in the Pacific Theater. Once the theater is closed, everyone's frozen in place. Right. Victory locations right. are no longer Correct. open to you. Right. So, and it was literally, it was, it was pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. Japan falls. Right. The American attacks fizzle, as always, because yep. nobody's committed resources to them. Right. And I've got a pretty weak probability attack on Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I need to roll a D10 mm-hmm. and have a four or lower. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not a great chance. Mm-hmm. It's my last chance to get Hong Kong because mm-hmm. Japan's fallen this mm-hmm. turn. Uh, and, and it came up, so basically British forces sort of like Indiana Jones, right. uh, like slide under the, uh, the, the, you know, slide under the barrier mm-hmm. uh, as, as it closes. Right. Um, and then the, sh- the conflict shifted to, the, to Europe where um, I actually managed to get the uh, Russians rolling through Eastern Europe really without any help from the Western Allies because the uh, Allies did not invade until late. And in fact, there was one point where I think you guys wanted to invade, uh, and I sort of, I, I, I took the second front and I pushed it out of the center, so that meant that you guys didn't get to do it. And the reason that I did that was I wanted an extra turn just to try to move one more space closer so that when you guys finally 
uh, finally invaded, I would hopefully you would you would suck off the um, the German armies because that's one that's the well, obviously the reason for the Second Front is that the you start. Um, occupying German armies that would other be otherwise be on the western front on the sorry on the eastern front they have to go to the western front and uh, it becomes easier for the Russians to to move through and I actually had one where I think I blew through into uh like there's there's this breakthrough mechanic where as long as you're not as long as it's a land combat you can move more than one space so I, I broke through into um, you know got very close and it was only towards the very end where uh, you guys were taking my production and my my directed offensives and keeping sort of keep. I was not able to uh, get that last last push into into Germany. Although I don't think I would have won even had I done that because um, problem is I spent so much time and so many resources doing uh, basically on the military effort that I had no political sort of presence in the world at all. I didn't have, you know, I think I had one, uh, I think I had a puppet government in Poland. That was it. And then, you know, you had grabbed that global issue, which opened up uh, a free Europe to the uh, to the machinations of democracy. And you had, you and, and uh, Evan both had um, markers, I think, of all throughout yeah. Eastern Europe. So... Within the circle, uh, on the on the sort of left hand pane of the board, uh, there's a mm-hmm. circle with all three powers and the the tracks of the spokes leading out to them. Mm-hmm. Connecting each power in a series of uh, bilateral relationships is mm-hmm. a triangle, and there's basically three positions uh, for each side of the triangle, mm-hmm. and it is a point of conflict, a global issue between uh, the two powers. Mm-hmm. So the British want to maintain colonial power status. They Mm -hmm. want to maintain colonialism. And the United States wants Mm self-determination. And that changes how people can deploy political assets uh, throughout the world. Right. Uh, Between the British and Russia, uh, the British want a free and open Europe, basically Mm -hmm. uh, status quo antebellum. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets want their buffer zone, and they want their uh, puppets, and they want basically uh, to restrict the West's political access uh, to uh, to to the to, to the to Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. um, uh, but getting back to how these uh, global issues work out. Uh, so you have these bilateral issues between each of the two major powers, and the UK wants to like basically keep the world the way it was, and the Soviets want to establish uh, primacy across a variety of regions, and. You know, kind of there's there's a hint in the way the board is constructed and what these issues represent that, like, these are also paths of victory that each side needs needs to be following. Right. And the Soviets are at a bit of a disadvantage insofar as it requires so many resources to beat the Germans on the Eastern Front that they don't have a lot of free resources lying around that they can turn towards things like... Um, setting up political operations mm-hmm. in these former colonies in Eastern Europe. Right. Uh, and, and to be fair, neither neither did the British. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what a big part of this game is sort of stealing uh, resources from the U.S. by uh, having the U.S. provide the, the muscle behind directed offensives. So right. there's ways that you can sort of both hamstring the U.S. and empower yourself by forcing them to do their part as the arsenal of democracy right. uh, to, to help you beat the, uh, beat the Axis powers while you spend your resources on laying the groundwork for the post-war order. Right. The Soviets 
even with that, still have to commit a lot of resources to the military side of things. But once Soviet tanks roll through Eastern Europe, uh, all the clandestine operations of the other powers are mopped up. Some of them. Well, m- many of them. Remember, only one clandestine, uh, op- one clandestine network per country one time. So once that initial mopping up happens, you can get back in, and which you guys did, and you did very effectively. That once the, once I went through and cleaned people up, then you uh, you once again uh, got in, back in there. But if the Soviets control the global issue about the fate of Europe, mm-hmm. the Soviets can basically shut off access to Eastern Europe so right. that clandestine networks can go in. But right. political influence never can. There right. can never be a political operation right. in any of these uh, now East Bloc co- countries. Mm-hmm. And I think a couple things happened. One was that you were committing so many resources to fight the Third Reich that mm-hmm. you just didn't play that game. But the right. other thing is that everyone sort of got locked into different strategies mm-hmm. uh, in this game. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a point where once it probably became apparent that that was an aspect of the game you needed to be doing more with, right. we were already so entrenched in Eastern Europe that right. like, now the opportunity cost for muscling back in there was going to be astronomical. Right. Yeah, it was hard to get. It, once once you're in there, I have to spend uh, clandestine networks and political influence just to knock you out. So it's basically t- it's twice as expensive or more. Um, and I didn't have the resources to fight that battle and fight the war as well. Um, so I think that if you look at Mark Herman's sort of, uh, you know, what does this mean uh, aspect of the design, it means that if the Allies had um, had forced the Russians to uh, to basically do the heavy lifting themselves, they would have been more... Um, more able to sort of take advantage of the Russians being completely, <laughs> completely absorbed in the military aspect, and they could have uh, done things in in Eastern Europe, uh, or or had the potential to do things in Eastern Europe while the Russians sort of were had their energies diverted elsewhere. Um, one other thing I want to get to is that. The game is also sort of makes a case that each of the three powers has a role to play at the table. And it's right. kind of how well you play right. uh, your hand, <laughs> figuratively and mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the negotiations work is that mm-hmm. you do play uh, a hand of cards yeah. to move each issue uh, toward you on the track. Um, but every nation has sort of a unique ability uh, when it comes to these conferences that gives them special abilities. So for the, for the British... They get a plus one bonus to the agenda uh, phase, which means the British have the best odds of anyone of winning the power to set the agenda. And mm-hmm. if they really want to, they can basically make it so they win every time uh, right. if they're willing to commit right. powerful cards to that at the right. start. The Russians have an interesting, and I, and I think this is another area where they seem like they're kind of tricky to play. Mm-hmm. The Russians have an interesting <laughs> negative ability mm-hmm. uh, in that. The Russians don't have a ton of... You seem to have generally weaker cards well, uh, when that, it came for... I'd actually... I don't think that's the case. I believe that all the cards are the same. Okay. The difference is what the special abilities are. So my special abilities generally have to do with directed offensives and production, whereas 
a lot of your special abilities have to do with things like the global issue in Paul Mill. So I didn't, ha I don't think I have very many cards that have uh, bonuses to Paul Mill, um, which and you do. So, um, but I think the cards themselves um, are pretty much. I'm almost certain that they're the that they're the same. That they're the same number of cards per uh, per hand. We can check that. Well, but I think the interesting point about the Russians is that. What, what's the special ability? It's, it's Nyet. Yeah. Uh, the, the Russians can, every time somebody moves an agenda item, uh, you have the option to debate it as another power and immediately move it back on the track. Right. Usually what that means is you're skipping your turn just to immediately respond to a move someone else made. Right. Uh, with the Russians, there's an incentive to do that almost every turn because right. when the Russians are sort of refusing an allied... Uh, push on the agenda track. Mm -hmm. uh, all the Russian cards operate like what? Plus one. Plus one, yes. So the Russian cards that are better in dispute, and you can really um, frustrate the Allies' you know abilities to bring stuff onto their side, which I thought was was really interesting. But again, it's it, it's tricky, right? It's 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 knowing which battles to fight. Where right. I think for the, for the UK, especially once you set the agenda, you kind of have a straightforward order of operations mm -hmm. game to play, right? You're gonna right. have the last move, so right. it's, it's keep stuff close to you, see what you can, right. see so you can sneak out, and right. then what is the last right. thing you want to do right. to to win the conference? Whoever wins the most agenda items mm -hmm. wins the conference and gets some extra victory points, um, and so. I definitely, I definitely think that <clears throat> we'd sort of managed that side of things for for so long that like the the Soviets in our game were were kind of blocked from from getting into the political side of things. Yeah, that I mean that that certainly happened. Now the, with the way you have to play the Soviets when you when you negotiate negotiate when you play the the con the actual conference table part of the game is that yes you do get a plus one to your. Um, to your debates, but that means that the other player is really deciding what's being debated, right? Because in order for something to be debated, it has an issue has to be moved. So I may not really want something that you're particularly moving uh, to be, uh, you know, I'm I'm not interested in that thing. But if I act on it, I get plus one. So I sort of have to keep. It. I mean, it's a way of increasing the, the value of all my cards by one for the entire conference, which is pretty powerful, but that means I'm just responding to what you guys are doing. And if I try to take something myself, then um, then I don't get that bonus. And the U.S. <clears throat> uh, have a couple uh, twists to them. First, every time everyone can use their power, use their use their leader card. Uh, you know, one of the big three, and that is the only card worth seven. So it basically means you can like dominate an issue mm -hmm. uh, if you want. Right. Um, but usually something happens to that leader uh, after you use them, or there's a chance something right. happens to that leader. Right. Uh, so for Churchill, every time you use Churchill, you roll 2d6, and there's a chance he has a heart attack, right. at which point he'll be inactive and unusable for mm -hmm. the next conference. Uh, Stalin can become paranoid after he acts, and that does, what, minus one to all your cards? Yeah, to the, all the rest of the cards for that conference. So obviously your your incentive is to play him late in the conference so that you don't have to uh, suffer that penalty. Now there is a thing where Stalin has this um, ability that he can't be debated on the A-bomb. And if the this is a standard kind of thing in the game that, that Mark has said multiple times is, is part of the design, 
is that if the British decide that they're going to be the, uh, the agenda setters every time, then all Stalin has to do is, because, because the order around the table is fixed and the way that you play is you play clockwise or you play to your left or whatever, however you want to call it, um, the player who uh, follows the British is the Russians. And the agenda setter, the person who wins the agenda, plays last. That means that the Russians are going to play first, so that means that all they have to do is they have to choose the A-bomb issue, uh, play Stalin on it, immediately goes to the Russian side, off, basically off the chart, and he can't be debated. So if, you, if the British uh, decide that they are going to um, set all the agendas, they're basically handing the Russians... I think it's like 12 victory points. Yeah. Um, and then the U.S., <laughs> Roosevelt can die, mm-hmm. uh, and he will at the last conference no matter what happens, but he can also uh, die a little earlier mm-hmm. if he's every time he's used, right. at which point you get a weaker uh, Truman sort of brought into the game. Right. Um, but the other thing the U.S. have is... They can they can sort of break ties at the end of the conference, right? They can determine who wins if the, if nobody else uses their leader. So the the Russians, if they if they use Stalin, they can't use Stalin to break ties. And there's the whole yeah. mechanic about how how many issues you win gets you whether you win the conference or not. And uh, most people have used their leaders, so then the Americans can just be the the final arbiters of that tie breaking decision. Yeah, so the Americans have a lot of ways to sort of become the the, the final hinge on which uh, discussions turn. Um, what I want to get to though mm-hmm. is the end game. Okay, so this is where things get interesting and a little weird. And okay. I'm, I've had a night to think it over, okay. and I woke up. Literally, it was the first thing I was thinking about when I woke up. Okay. I was like, "But is that good though?" Right. Um, so this is a long game. Yes, uh, we played the full uh, again, Ten. magisterial. Ten, uh, ten, ten conferences. It took us seven hours. Yeah. Now this this is this was your first game, and we were playing very leisurely, and we yeah. were not, you know, we were drinking and we were talking, and we were not, um, we were not in any way trying to bull through a game because I think I played this with um, uh, with uh, Don and another friend of mine who came to visit, and. We it was his first game too, but I think only I think the ten conferences only took us, or maybe we only played the seven. I can't remember, but it didn't. It definitely didn't take seven hours. So I yeah. think that we were we were definitely on the on the slow boat as far as this game goes. Yeah, we we absolutely were. Uh, that said, it's it's still like you, ten conferences, no matter what, it's still going to yeah. be a substantial investment, right? And then toward the end, the victory conditions start really coming into focus. Right. Because this is right. like this is something that's easy to ignore right. in a ten-turn game. Yeah. Because uh, for the like that's that's several conferences away. So mm-hmm. much can happen. Mm-hmm. But in the end game, there's three distinct victory conditions right. that sort of change how uh, victory is decided. And the ones that really like came into play for us were condition two and condition three. Uh, because those are the two conditions that covered what happens when someone has a huge lead or when the third-ranked power has a huge deficit. Right. And it gets really slippery there. Well, because... The, the, yeah. The conditions are... The, first of all, the conditions are whether the, the axis is defeated or not. Because if the axis is defeated, that's one thing. If the axis is not defeated, then you're already into, you're already into condition three, at which point... You um, 
you have some die rolls to make about how many points you, you the, 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 the leading player is going to give up points and the, the uh, last place player is going to gain points. Now I didn't have enough points in the final analysis to, um, to uh, how should I put it? I, I couldn't make up the giant deficit, but um, how, how did it, I can't remember how, Evan won. <laughs> But what was the final? I can't remember the final. When you guys so were calculating, had, I was I was like, yeah. okay, I'm not going to win, so I'm just going to. So he had he finished I think with 67 points, yeah. and I finished I think with like 56 or 58. Okay. Like it was, and what it had come down to was in the last turn he swung one of the global issues to his side, which meant I lost five points. Mm-hmm. He gained five points, zero sum. Mm-hmm. He it's a ten point swing. He he wins the game. Mm-hmm. But where it gets really interesting mm-hmm. is he and I both, around turn seven, started looking at the board and looking at the victory conditions and realizing we had a huge fucking problem here, uh-huh. which is that if we defeated the Soviets, mm-hmm. eh, sorry, if we defeated if we defeated the Germans, mm-hmm. the Soviets were still way back mm-hmm. in third place. Right. Victory actually goes to the second place power, right. not the first place power. Because in in that circumstance, uh, basically condition two victory is there's a huge gap between first and uh, first and third. Mm-hmm. In that in that case, second place becomes the winner, right? Uh, and that's and and that was a really complicating element because we were neck and neck, like mm-hmm. we were switching between first and second constantly. So it became very unpredictable, right? As to who was going to be in the lead at right. the end. Condition three is where things get interesting. Condition three is if the axis, if one of the axis powers is not defeated, right, and it's a huge deficit still exists between first and third, right. There is a die roll that adjusts some points that can swing points slight, uh, quite a bit for the first place player and, uh-huh. and, and somewhat for the uh, third place player and right. a little bit for the middle player. But once those adjustments have taken place, it comes down to who's got the most points. Right. So with about three turns left to play, we start veering wildly because we're starting to panic. Because mm-hmm. we're like, after six hours of a board game, yeah. you kind of want to win. Like, after, after six hours, there's a weird, like, an economist could probably come in and explain okay. why we felt this way. But after right. six hours, I was like, okay, I'm not playing anymore. I really, I really want to win World War II. Like, <laughs> I, I want to dominate the post-war okay. order. All right. So, Evan realizes he's ahead by two points. Mm-hmm. But it's likely the Germans are going to fall. Mm-hmm. At which point we're in condition two victory. Middle player wins. Mm-hmm. So he needs to dump points. Right. And so he... Basically tanks a, a conference and mm-hmm. slides issues like doesn't just m- ends up with pushing every issue toward me. Um, well, more letting me drag them to me. Right. There were a couple issues I wanted, right? And he didn't want any, right? So I just ended up like getting two things that I wanted, right? And that was enough to basically win me the conference, right? And win me three victory points, which put me ahead, mm-hmm. and meant I was in first place, and would therefore lose mm-hmm. if Germany fell. So I'm sitting there and I've walked into this trap, at which point I start examining condition three, Mm -hmm. in which case, well, what happens if the Germans don't fall? Right. That could be pretty good for me. Right. So I immediately went all in on trying to prevent the Germans from falling Mm -hmm. 
and running up the score on the UK side, which meant last-ditch offensives in Italy, mm-hmm. which doesn't get you any closer to beating Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to do that, but what swung in the end was Evan swiped a global issue, mm-hmm. went from colonialism to self-determination, right. the 10-point swing. We were in condition three because now, because of my choices, I'd helped lock in that that was going to happen. Like okay. We had two turns where nobody was really trying to fight Germany. Soviets couldn't do, the, do it by themselves. And so with that, that point swing, uh, we went to the, the third condition, and it came down to who had the biggest lead. And by that point, Evan had just enough of a lead. To uh, to notch the victory. Interesting. It was pretty dramatic. Yeah. Like it was it was interesting because in those last three turns, there's like two levels of victory calculation mm-hmm. that are happening that mm-hmm. I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. There's the straight calculation of you looking at the victory conditions and okay, well, how are the points going to break down those scenarios? Mm-hmm. But then there's the bigger like meta issue of which of these victory conditions do I want to trigger? Like, which is the most advantageous for right. me, and do I strategize for that? Right. You really can't strategize for both effectively. You need, right. to, you need to somehow guarantee that you're going to get the victory condition you're planning for, and that you're going to win under that condition. Mm-hmm. I didn't pull it off. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't quite get it. I, right. I, I got the first part, not the second. Right. It was interesting, but it also felt toward the end, like I had no idea what game I was playing. You know what I mean? Like, because the rules are so... They're so varied in right. those victory conditions. Right. And I'm sitting there like, how was I supposed to strategize for mm-hmm. this? And I'm sure that comes with time, with more right. familiarity with the game. Right. But in that in that first blush, it feels like basically this game plays out according to insanely different rules mm-hmm. that can change very capriciously at the mm-hmm. end. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of, uh, it gives you that feeling of, oh my gosh, this cataclysmic world event is about to is about to end, right? I mean, we've been having this this world war for six years. Now it's ending, and we need to scramble and figure out actually where do we stand in the world order, right? And that's what you're doing in the end game to Churchill, which is, I think, is a really, uh, philosophically from a game design perspective, is a very interesting and, and, and really genius kind of achievement by Mark. I mean, I think it's just a, it's a great way of, conceptualizing this sort of historical moment in board game mechanics, right? I mean, you just, I, the, um, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I, I could never have imagined this actually working until the box showed up and I played it and thought, wow, this is a, this is an amazing game. It's an amazing design. So, um, you know, people have complained about the gaminess at the end. I mean, I, I think that's, games are, Games can be gamey. Anybody's going to be able to game. I mean, there's the a uh, lot of people. You, <clears throat> your comment was interesting <clears throat> about how uh, how the uh, the fact that you played for so long means that you're really invested in whether you win or not. I didn't actually feel that way. I mean, I I could see that I wasn't going to win as soon as I I saw how badly I was suffering on the on the Paul Mill uh, front. Political military. Yeah, political military, yeah. So there was, yeah, I didn't I didn't have the political, um, I didn't have a clandestine network, so I couldn't, I couldn't put up the, um, the, uh, what do you call it, the, um, 
the political, political alignment, yeah. and then I also didn't, I, because I was spending so much time on other issues, I, on all directed offensives and production, I didn't get the global issues, so Europe was basically... Uh, Eastern Europe was free, and and I was losing control there. So I you know I saw that that was going against me, and I realized I really didn't have a chance to win. But then I decided, you know what? Uh, I'm still enjoying the game, and I'm still enjoying sitting and playing with you guys. So I didn't feel so bad about the sort of uh, you know what's going to happen after seven hours because the experience itself was 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 what I enjoyed. There are people who have complained about the die roll, and this actually the second. Um, Printing of the game, I think, changed the victory conditions slightly in that there's a there's an option. I don't know if it's an option or if it's just how the way it works. That you uh, there's no die rolls, just fixed numbers. So rather than uh, you know having 15 in a die roll, it's it's uh, or, or rather than the person at the end rolling a die and subtracting half or rolling die and subtracting, and, and you just get you gain or lose fixed numbers, which I think is the the complaint was that oh I don't want to lose the game on a die roll, but I mean the it's not just losing the game on a die roll. It's the fact that that die roll presents uncertainty that mm -hmm. leads into. I mean, that's the whole <clears throat> the whole point of the game design is that you you preserve the uncertainty into the end game. And and if you're going to take advantage, <clears throat> excuse me again, of uh, of a game having this this uncertainty, which I think is a huge positive in terms of being able to play the game and <clears throat> not plan exactly, take some of the gaminess out, plus it preserves the idea of the uncertainty, which I'm sure that, you know, I think from a design standpoint and from modeling this sort of, you know, world-shaking event, I think the uncertainty is much more appropriate than some kind of fixed number. Um, I, I totally am, I'm all for it. I don't, <clears throat> I think if I had been winning and I'd, I'd lost the game on a, on a die roll, I would still say, you know what, <clears throat> that was, that's, that's how it rolls, and so I, I really am totally, I totally support that uh, variable outcome. Yeah, I actually kind of liked the die roll because it meant that you were dealing with you're you're calculating the victory conditions with an eye toward what is probable mm -hmm. to happen here, right. like, and is there a way right. to make it so that the die roll doesn't matter? There are ways to make it so the sure. die roll doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You can work around it, right? But I think if that number is fixed, there's a little more of that. Um, very calculated and Euro gamey. Mm -hmm. You sort of call your shot and you alight on the exact values right. you want, and your whole strategy becomes just about making sure those right. numbers don't change. Right. And I kind of prefer the notion, especially when two victory conditions are still in play. Yeah. That you're wrestling with what uncertainty is more favorable to you right. in these situations. I kind of liked that aspect of yeah. it. What I came out wondering was. I guess what's the related to the fact that you've fallen really far behind, mm -hmm. and that sort of changed it into a neck and neck horse race between right. the U.S. and the U.K. Right. I was trying to figure out from my perspective, like what could I have done to use the Soviets to my advantage a little mm -hmm. more, right? Like how do you want how do you want the third player to be kept in the game? Right. How do you because it feels like you do want ideally everyone to feel like they're in it, mm -hmm. and I. And you kind of want to be the person who's actually like sort of secretly winning, but right. everyone thinks right. that they're doing right. well. Right. And so I was I was trying to figure out like what is the correct way to sort of like use your allies. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, one mm -hmm. thing I, I I sort of hit on was that you want to keep the Soviets focused on 
Eastern Europe for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And you want them to make progress, but you don't want to make them, pro- them to make progress too quickly. Because the fear is, once the Soviets start rolling right. through Eastern Europe, it can end very quickly. Right. And they get a lot of victory points really fast, mm-hmm. and you can't respond. Right. So there's there's a bit of that. And I feel like in our game, we let the Eastern Front like just twist mm-hmm. for a long time so they yeah. were blocked while we did whatever the hell we wanted. Right. Um, but then what that turned into was nobody could really... It, it led to the most variable endgame situations possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the thing that I've seen in, in previous playings of the game is that the Americans often don't want the Eastern Front uh, rolling until they get some of the uh, Pacific sort of underway because the Pacific requires a lot of resources. And so you don't want the, to let the Russians loose until you're sure that you're going to be able to switch your, your, um, your resources back into, the, into Europe. Right, because yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be it's going to be a, a drain on the Pacific War. So you're going to put the resources in Europe and try to you know race the race the Russians to to Berlin. Um, but uh, in this case, that wasn't really what happened at all. It was, I mean, the the Americans never got off the ground in the Pacific, and the the thing you guys all spent your resources on was the political military stuff. I mean, that's that's yeah. all. That's basically while I was while I was struggling through, uh, you know. The, you know, was on the I was on the Don River, uh, you know, and Second Front was nowhere in sight, and you guys were were basically spending all your resources on political and military um, uh, networks. You can you almost imagine like you know uh, Roosevelt and Churchill sitting on the deck of that battleship and being like the Russians got this right, right. like there's no way he's not going to win in the right. end. Right. So let's just <laughs> plant our spies right. uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, I think something else, there's, there's one of the mechanic I, I want to mention here. Yeah. I find that really interesting, too. Right. It requires, this is where, it requires a great deal of trust and collaboration between the U.S. and the U.K. Okay. It's the area where I think the most is required. Theater command. Ah, yes. The most advantageous thing to happen is that the U.S. and U.K. exchange theater command. Each turn. Yeah. Yeah. Because every time a change of theater command happens... Extra resources are sort of granted for to the leading player that turn. Right, that can be committed anywhere. Right, like you can, like every time you have theater command, mm-hmm. uh, change hands. It's like three factories materialized from the ether, uh-huh. which is a pretty huge. Like that almost doubles the Britain's power yeah, in right, turn. Right. Three factories materialized from the ether, mm-hmm. and you can put those anywhere. Right, and that's especially critical in the Pacific, where you've got. These two really difficult tracks for the U.S. plus mm-hmm. a really long track for the U.K. Mm-hmm. And if you if you play that game, it isn't so daunting mm-hmm. because you can push those tracks right. pretty consistently and pretty evenly. Right. We did not play that game very effectively, yeah. not until very close to the end. Right. Uh, but what that led to was if nobody's playing that game, then there really aren't enough resources to go around, right. and the most you can do is create one sure thing in a the theater each turn. And one iffy thing, and then a lot of like zero probability uh, attacks. And 
I don't know. I thought, I thought that was really interesting because it was definitely a the person with theater command gets to sort of steer. Like that's the trade off is they can push their agenda. They can right. sort of it, it gives them a lot of ability to manipulate mm-hmm. the board. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it does increase everyone's overall power, yeah. uh, which I found really an interesting dynamic. Yeah, the, <clears throat> the theater commanders. I think that's the that's sort of the secret sauce that uh, Mark put in there for you know what if experienced experienced players can take down the access with no problem if they start off at the beginning of the game understanding that they need to sort of milk this theater command for you know because if you have if the same power controls both theaters then they have extra resources they can allocate anywhere um and uh this is something that i think you only get sort of you get the idea after seeing oh wait a minute I won these two issues, and now I own both, and now I get all this extra, you know, the, because when you get handed all these, these extra resources, you're like, whoa, wow, I get to do this and this, and, and so there's sort of this, this dawning of, of a, uh, uh, hey, I should be doing this every turn. Why did it just, you know, why did I just have the jackpot now? Like, you know, and, and you, you do it, one, one player does it one turn, another player does it. Now, now, it is, it does mean that, you have to devote. You, I mean, you only have six cards to play in the uh, in the conference, and that means that's you know that's an issue each, right? European yeah. Theater Command and, and Pacific Theater Command. So those leadership issues take up resources when, in the form of cards. But I think that it's definitely worth doing. Now the Russians can then sort of you know mess with that. I never did because I was too busy doing other stuff, trying to trying to marshal the resources for um for that final push on berlin which i just missed um but yeah i think that i think the game sort of gives you these these sort of take-home lessons which is that you can't neglect any part the war was not just about defeating the axis it was about all this other stuff um you know the um the establishment, you know, the the, the post war political situation, right? I mean, the game is called the the big street, the big three struggle for peace, right? And they're struggling for peace, but they're struggling about the peace and what the peace is going to look like, and what part of what that peace is going to look like is what the political alignments are in all these countries at the end of the war. And so you have to fight over the global issue to decide who's going to, you know, who's going to agree to what, and then you have to put the resources into getting those things, and that's all stuff that's not going to. Uh, be contributed to the war effort because you have to take cards to play those on those issues and then you have to use production to power the political military chits that you've gotten um so yeah there's i mean i think mark has has really given an his opinion of how sort of the the interaction between what it rep, what what these things all represented to the leaders and what decisions they had to make. And I think it's very I mean I think it's very plausible and I think it's really I think it's really good and very interesting. So as as we wind down here I think we should talk about 13 days just briefly too though. Um that's that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm but I'm thinking in terms of like our conversation about specificity, mm-hmm. uh, which we have the, the night I got it, yeah. where we were talking about uh, war games and specificity, and this is probably a larger topic that yeah. we will talk about soon yeah. uh, on another show. Right. But I think this was a really good example of a game that draws its power from uh, this is not a system that's going to represent 
many things. Like, right. I can ima- maybe I can imagine like someone designing a similar set of mechanics for a game about like newsies. You know, <laughs> it's about like newspapers right. and muckrakers yeah, in yeah, the yeah, early right. uh, 20th century, late 19th. Yeah. But but really, this is a design that's very narrowly tailored to the specific. Uh, dynamic that existed at this one point in history between these three powers with their interests. And I think that makes it very, very powerful and very entertaining. Uh, But I'm also kind of struck by how almost gloriously uh, unadaptable Mm -hmm. uh, it is. We'll we'll see how unadaptable it is because Mark is making a game called Pericles about the Peloponnesian War that I think uses a lot of the system. So I'm I'm curious to see what the differences are between this and Pericles. But I agree that, that, you know, this is a... uh, You know, I I like... We were were also talking about this uh, where, you know, people had these, um, you know... War games are systems, and it's a tr- it's a war game sort of tradition to have a system. And then you're like, well, I made the system about um, you know the Civil War, but if we just changed a bunch of stuff, it could be about you know fighting aliens, or it could be about you know some other historical situation. Or if you have a historical situation, then you're like, okay, this is my Gettysburg system. Let's now make a Antietam system. Let's now make a you know Bull Run system. Let's make a Shiloh. You know, it's all it's all the same system. But we just keep changing the counters and names. This is definitely something I, you know, it's one of those rare things where somebody's really designed a game about a historical moment that is so, has so many things that clearly are, are, are specific to the, the moment itself and the design reflects that. So turn to 13 days uh, for, for a second. Yeah. Um, So, that is very reminiscent of Twilight Struggle. Yes. Uh, it's a uh, territory control mm-hmm. uh, game. Yep. But unlike Twilight Struggle, which unfurls into a global map mm-hmm. uh, with lots of push-pull mechanics right. across the entire world, 13 Days uh, is a three-turn card game uh, that's set around each stage of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. There's only a handful. I think there's nine uh, battlegrounds. Something like basically. that, yeah. Um, Three sets of three, mm-hmm. uh, each set uh, following a different uh, sort of category of confrontation, mm-hmm. each of which exists mm-hmm. on a track, uh, the DEFCON track mm-hmm. that leads. And this is where it gets very reminiscent of Twilight right. Struggle. Uh, because the more resources you put into any sort of uh, battleground, mm-hmm. and that can be public opinion. You know, mm-hmm. you can still be waging the war to, right. to get the world on your side. Mm-hmm. But the more resources you sort of commit to something... Uh, the more you were escalating right. uh, that that frontier of the right. conflict, right. and it can escalate all the way into DEFCON 1, and if a turn ends uh, and someone has any chit still sitting in DEFCON 1, mm-hmm. congratulations, you've blown up the world. Right. If everyone, if, if any one player has all their chits mm-hmm. in DEFCON 2, mm-hmm. so they're escalated across the board, the game still ends. Yeah. The world's destroyed. Right. And then... There are ways to manipulate your opponent's death contract. Right. And that's that's the part where my mind broke mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite like I couldn't quite wrap my head around mm-hmm. like the right way to sort of like make these bets and and, and gamble because mm-hmm. there's uncertainty about the victory conditions. Right. Then so, you have you have the the you you get you get uh, objectives that are public in the sense that you disclose what they are, but you don't disclose which one of those three you've chosen. So each player gets three objectives, you mark them, and then they keep one of the objectives secret, 
and stick it under the board and then only reveal it at the end of the turn. And so you may be fighting over something that is, uh, you know, not necessarily, you know, you, you uh, thought was an objective, but it's really not. Um, and also, this is another interesting thing, is that uh, you can, uh, you have your own objective and your opponent's objective, and you can, you, so you can score for your opponent's objective, right? I mean, you can, you, if the, your opponent doesn't effectively fight for his objective, you can score for yours and his. Um, but then at the end of the game, or the end of the game, at the end of the turn, there's all this adjustment of the death contracts, and if you go too heavy into something, you've basically pushed the world to the brink of nuclear war, and you're going to need to step back somewhere, right? And so there's all this uh, sort of calculation about, well, which objectives did I draw? I can't really choose this objective this turn because I'm already, you know, cranked up on this death contract. So if I try, if I fight for this objective, it's going to push us into war. So I've got to actually back off of that. But then maybe he's fighting for that. It's a very it's that I like that hidden element because in, in Twilight Struggle, I mean, everybody knows what I mean, the scoring cards come out unexpectedly, well, not unexpectedly. They, you can't predict necessarily when a card's coming up and you have some control of when you're going to play them. But uh, but everybody knows that, you know, Europe is going to score and this is how many points Europe is going to score when it does. Here, you have no idea which of these things is going to score. Well, and I think it's really telling that, like, at this point, Electronic Twilight Struggle is my preferred way to play mm -hmm, sure. because the thing it does is it always keeps an accurate track right. of all the board state right. stuff, all right. the score stuff. Right. Um, and that could be a major disadvantage if you're playing tabletop where, like, there were so many moving pieces right. that, like, a lot of, like, the game skill was just reading the state of the board sure. accurately. Right. Now you don't have to worry about that. You're getting accurate reports. Right. Uh, which means, like, you can play at a higher level more easily. Right. But you can also manipulate things right. with a little more sure. clear understanding. Sure. sure. What this sort of reintroduces that, like, even if you create an electronic version that tracks everything perfectly, there's not that much to track. The uncertainty is there's only one of these agendas. Like, the, 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 the opposing player has three p potential agendas. They're showing, and I know what they are. But which one's actually going to score? Right. I don't know. Yeah. So it's it's trying to read that intent, and I love that that bluffing uh, aspect of it. That like no matter what like format this would be, that uncertainty would still be like baked into the game. Right. Um, the other thing I, I, I dig is that there's kind of an incentive to uh, maybe overinvest resources in a certain battleground, even when you don't need to, mm -hmm. because the only way to rapidly de-escalate right. uh, a track later is to pull resources off the board right. in large numbers. Right. And you can't do that. Um, you can't go around the board and pull you know, one from here and one from here and one from here. Right. It's got to be one move off one space. Right. So you need to have a lot of resources committed somewhere potentially not so you can win that space, right. but so that you can get the hell out of it later. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so it's the idea of creating a, uh, you know, uh, a tough negotiating position just to be able to back off and see and seem like you're giving your opponent some victory to keep things from getting too far out of hand, even though you don't really care about that thing in the first place, right? So it's, it's a very, I think what we did uh, this weekend was we played two very, one where you really negotiated, and the other one where all the negotiation was in this uh, this idea of escalation and de-escalation. It was more more a uh, game where the negotiations were were really the mechanics. Uh, and the uh, in Churchill, the, obviously, negotiations are mechanics as well. But you have that direct 
sort of, hey man, don't take the European leadership this turn. Uh, I need it so that we can get these extra resources, blah, blah, blah. What are we going to do with all your production, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So, but yeah, that was definitely, um, definitely a theme, negotiation in, in, yeah. in, in different types of, of, uh, of games this weekend. So the last thing I'll say about uh, 13 Days is it's big advantage over Twilight Struggle uh, is that we played, I think, three games. Easy. Yeah, we actually played, yeah, we played like three and a half. Well, th- three and a half. One of those was my first game. Yeah, and, and one of them ended like after the first turn because I think you miscalculated. And we, or not yeah. you didn't miscalculate, but you just, because I had one of the uh, DEF CON objectives, I was able to push you off into yeah. into into DEF CON 1. But yeah, but I mean, yeah, we, we played... Uh, yeah, those those all those games, and we yeah basically I taught you the game, and yeah. we were done with all that stuff in ninety minutes, no, definitely less than right. two hours. Yeah, it's it's definitely not the Twilight Struggle situation yeah. where it's like you are that is your activity for the evening. Yeah, right. Uh, this right. is you can get a lot of you push a lot of the same yeah. buttons, but in a very yeah we knocked a few out, and then we're like okay, next thing and yeah. So, uh, so I think that will do it for this week's show. Uh, there's there's a few other topics in wargaming that I think Bruce and I will want to revisit soon because mm-hmm. uh, we had some fruitful discussions mm-hmm. uh, while we were here. Uh, but we'll be back next week uh, with with another strategy discussion. Uh, my thanks to Michael Hermes for producing this episode. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can learn more about the show at threemovesahead.net. And finally, uh, Three Moves Ahead is uh, sponsored by uh, listeners just like you. Uh, you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, for Bruce Garrick, this is Rob Zachney saying good night. And buy Ivanka's shoes. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. <laughs>